about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, writer and organizer, Kelly Hayes. It is Native American Heritage Month, and today we are talking about attacks on Native families and sovereignty, and how those attacks figure into a larger bid for right-wing domination. That means we are talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act, a law that was created to protect Native children from state-sanctioned kidnappings, and the conservative plot to unravel those protections. As a Native person whose father was removed from our reservation as an infant before ICWA went into effect, this is a tough subject for me. So I am really grateful to Rebecca Nagel, who you'll be hearing from in a bit, for offering a lot of essential history and insight for this episode. Rebecca is a Cherokee writer and advocate, and she's also the host of an award-winning podcast called This Land, a show that does an amazing job of highlighting the human cost of the war on ICWA, while also breaking down why a terrifying spectrum of forces on the right are determined to destroy a Native-specific child welfare law. We're going to talk a bit about the right-wing alignment against the Indian Child Welfare Act and the money that powers it, and why the bigger picture here should scare the hell out of everyone. We're not going to be delving into the personal stories of families involved in ICWA-related custody cases, but I highly recommend checking out Rebecca's podcast, This Land, to get a better understanding of those stories, because what's happening to Native children is at the heart of this story. Today, we are going to talk about the historical context and political ramifications of the legal struggle over ICWA, and about showing up for Native people in struggle. We'll also be talking about some traumatic subjects, including residential school deaths, child abuse, and genocide. So as Rebecca would say, please take care of yourselves while you listen. In recent months, thousands of unmarked graves have been discovered at Canadian boarding schools where First Nations children were once held. In the United States, Interior Secretary Deb Holland responded to the news in Canada by announcing that the U.S. government would finally cooperate with Native communities to determine the locations of shuttered boarding schools and where Native children who died in those facilities might be buried. In an op-ed for the Washington Post, Holland, who is the first Native American cabinet secretary in the U.S., shared that her own maternal grandparents were stolen from their families at the age of eight and that her great-grandfather was taken to the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. Holland wrote that the purpose of Indian boarding schools was to culturally assimilate Indigenous children by forcibly relocating them from their families and communities to distant residential facilities where their American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian identities, languages, and beliefs were to be forcibly suppressed. Holland promised that her department's Federal Indian Boarding School initiative would serve as an investigation about the loss of human life and the lasting consequences of residential Indian boarding schools. Revisiting these histories of kidnapping, incarceration, and death has been painful for First Nations and Native communities. Among non-Native people, we've seen a greater recognition of the fact that boarding schools were instruments of atrocity. But I found it noticeable that for a lot of people, those children's deaths were part of a narrative fixed in time, somewhere far behind us. An old story in need of closure. When in reality, 
those children's deaths were part of an ongoing project that we are all still experiencing. Settler colonialism has shapeshifted and reconfigured itself over time, but it has always been a destroyer of worlds, and it has now grown into a system with unprecedented world-ending potential. So I think this is a time to ask questions and make connections. So I'm going to go on a bit of a historical rant because we can't talk about the Indian Child Welfare Act without talking about cultural genocide and the institutionalization of native genocide. The Department of Interior's 1883 Code of Indian Offenses, which were laws that only applied to native people, punished native people with starvation or incarceration for engaging in native cultural practices. Native dances, ceremonies, and traditional feasts were criminalized. That code wasn't amended for 50 years, and Native people did not have guaranteed religious freedom under the law until 1978. When open warfare between Native people and colonists ended, and colonial massacres fell out of fashion legally in the U.S., anti-Native violence became increasingly institutionalized. The government was bound by treaty to provide Native people with health care, and the resulting health care apparatus— the Indian Health Service, was weaponized to sterilize Native people. 25 to 42% of Native people in the U.S. who were physically capable of giving birth were sterilized during the 1970s. In Canada, Indigenous women have reported coerced sterilization as recently as 2017. But sterilization was just one method of driving down the populations of Indigenous communities. During the late 1800s and the first half of the 20th century, Indigenous children were removed from their homes en masse in both the U.S. and Canada for assimilationist purposes. Many were forced into boarding schools, and many others were placed with white families. In the U.S. in the 1950s, Congress began passing laws that aimed to terminate the sovereign legal status of tribes, putting Native people and their resources under the power of states positioned to absorb and sell their land. Some terminated tribes were ultimately re-recognized, and some tribes managed to fight off termination in the courts. But termination, as the objective, was the posture of U.S. policy in the U.S. for decades. And the goals of termination were clear, to obliterate the sovereign legal status of Native people and any shared relationships to our land, culture, or history that hadn't been destroyed yet by colonialism. This institutionalized genocide was more socially presentable than outright extermination, and could even be framed as humanitarian. U.S. Army officer Richard Henry Pratt, who founded the Carlisle Boarding School, stated in 1892, A great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. The Bureau of Indian Affairs would subsequently model an estimated 366 boarding schools after Carlisle, and for over 150 years, hundreds of thousands of Native children would be kidnapped and abused in those facilities. Tens of thousands of those children died. Until recently, the federal government has been unwilling to discuss how many schools existed or verify how many children died. Even now, we don't have finite answers. Prior to the enactment of ICWA in 1978, 25 to 35% of Native children were being removed from Native homes in the U.S. and placed in boarding schools or with predominantly white families. 
after the passage of ICWA, courts and private agencies were legally required to pursue reunification or familial placement for Native children and to consult with tribes when making custodial determinations about Native children in the foster care system. Even with the protections ICWA ostensibly provides, Native families still experience high rates of family separation due to disproportionate rates of incarceration and a social work system that punishes Native families for experiencing abject poverty. But under ICWA, Native people have a legal basis to challenge the systemic theft of Native children. Now it appears a right-wing Supreme Court will decide whether or not those protections will endure, and while most people don't pay attention to the particulars of federal Indian law or what happens to Native people, everyone in the United States has a pretty terrifying stake in this struggle. Rebecca Nagel tells that story of overlapping agendas and a multi-million dollar assault on a child welfare law in her award-winning podcast, This Land. And I have to say, about halfway through season two of This Land, it became my favorite podcast. The show's investigative team and Rebecca's narration and reporting are outstanding. And the story is so essential and yet largely ignored. Because people in the U.S. have been conditioned to ignore Native struggle unless they can refer to it in the past tense, as if to establish their own moral character by grieving over our history, rather than showing solidarity in ways that could impact our lives in the present. As a fan of this land, and as a Native journalist myself, I was curious about Rebecca's journey as a Cherokee woman covering the fight to save ICWA and relentlessly following the money in order to expose a larger conservative power grab. She said that for her, the journey began with a question. I wanted to report this story because the Indian Child Welfare Act has been challenged more times in the past decade than the Affordable Care Act. And there's a concerted and coordinated campaign to strike this law down. And my big question was, why? You know, why is a 40-year-old law um, that was created to prevent the systematic family separation in Native communities that was happening in the 50s and 60s, and really for generations before that, if you look at U.S. history, how did this law suddenly become a controversy Um, And that investigation took me to a lot of unexpected places. Um, And for people who've never heard of um, the Indian Child Welfare Act or ICWA, just a quick primer, um, it was passed in Congress in 1978, and it came after a big national survey found that 25 to 35% of all Native children had been removed from their families and tribes. And that's just a staggering statistic to think about. You know, you talk to elders from that area and people will talk about, you know, there were communities, Native communities, where literally there were no children. The removal rates were so high. Um, And a couple things were going on. Um, The Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is a government agency, was running this program called the Federal Indian Adoption Project, where they were literally um, partnering with the Child Welfare League to place Native kids in white homes um, under the extremely racist thinking that Native kids were just inherently and automatically better off there. 
And then there was something else going on, which was that child welfare agencies and social workers at the time had a lot of bias against indigenous families, you know, and so they would see a kid being raised by an auntie or a grandma and say, well, since this child isn't being raised by their biological parents, it's child abandonment and take the child. Um, And so ICWA is... Um, it's a complicated law. It does a lot of different things. Um, it doesn't do just one thing. But I think of it as sort of a set of guardrails um, that when a Native kid, and that kid, it, Native means that child is either enrolled in a federally recognized tribe or eligible for enrollment in a federally recognized tribe. If that child is going through the child welfare system or a private adoption proceeding, it's like a set of guardrails to make sure that that child stays connected first to their family, second to their tribe, and third um, to their Native identity. It's important to understand that depicting an entire race, community, or group of people as being incapable of caring for their own children is a political tactic that provides cover for oppression, while also absolving the state of its role in the conditions that impact a child's quality of life. Because how can people who can't be trusted to make decisions for their own children be trusted to make decisions for themselves as a people? And if parents are dysfunctional, how can we blame the state for the hardships of their children? In Killing the Black Body, Dorothy Roberts wrote that blaming Black mothers is a way of subjugating the Black race as a whole. In her 2002 book, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, Roberts noted that non-white children in the foster care system in Tennessee had a 42% lower probability of leaving state custody in three years after controlling for all other factors, including behavioral problems, family characteristics, and services. The experiences of Black parents and children make clear that the family regulation system serves as an arm of surveillance and social control for the carceral state. And as with all areas of criminalization, a different set of standards exist for people with money. As Roberts wrote, the main reason child protection services deal primarily with poor families is because of the way child maltreatment is defined. The child welfare system is designed to detect and punish neglect on the part of poor parents and to ignore most middle class and wealthy parents' failings. So it's important that we understand that the system is not fundamentally one that looks out for children but gets weaponized against Native families. The family regulation system is fundamentally violent and always has been. And I know and understand all of that. And yet, I still get choked up when I think about the level of terror that was imposed on Native families during the pre-Iqua days of child removal. Native people couldn't leave their children to play unattended in their yards without worrying that a social worker might show up and kidnap them. People who didn't hide their children quickly enough when social workers appeared were forced to watch as their children were taken. Parents who resisted faced incarceration and further threats that they would never see their children again. Something a lot of people miss when discussing these histories is the social control embedded in these dynamics. Native people have long histories of resistance to settler colonialism. 
Some parents whose children were taken from them formed encampments near their schools to be close to their children and demand their return, but many families cooperated with the federal government in every way that they could because that government was holding their children hostage. Much like Trump's family separations at the border, the separation of Native children from their parents, which sometimes involved the use of tiny shackles, was meant to have a chilling effect on parents and communities. The U.S. government held entire generations of Native children hostage, and as recent events have reinforced, it had no compunction about killing them. I think during the boarding school era, you know, Pratt, this general within the army who kind of um, conceived of the idea of boarding schools, he wrote in his own writings, he talked about Native children that were supposedly being educated at these horrific institutions as hostages, you know, basically um, as bargaining chips for what he called the good behavior of their people. And I think that that is something that we see throughout U.S. history that over and over, Native children are used as the tip of the spear in the project of colonization and genocide. And so, you know, it happened during the boarding school era. It happened during the Indian Adoption Project era. And I would argue it's happening now, you know, that um, certain players are using literally using Native children, using custody battles over Native toddlers and using this broader battleground of ICWA to strike at other big issues in federal Indian law um, and big issues of tribal sovereignty and Native rights. And so, you know, when you look at the history of how Native kids have been used, um, we haven't we haven't moved past that. And I think something that's hard to talk about in Native communities is how our families are still being treated within the foster care system. So there are huge racial disparities within foster care, specifically for Native families and for Black families. And so, um, you know, just to look at one place in Minnesota, um, Native kids have a one in three chance of entering foster care before they turn 18. Native babies have a one in 10 chance of entering foster care before their first birthday. Nationally, the average for white babies is one in 100. And you see those racial disparities at every level from, you know, who is getting reported to CPS, who is getting investigated by CPS, once an investigation is happening, you know, what children are being removed. And people can say, oh, well, there just must be more dysfunction or more abuse within Native communities. But I think a really other important statistic is that white kids are actually more likely, um, when you look at the cause for removal, white children are more likely to be removed for physical and sexual abuse. And Native kids are more likely to be removed for this catch-all category called neglect. And poverty, especially extreme poverty, can look like neglect to a lot of people. You know, I talked to a parent advocate um, who works with Native families in Minneapolis, and she was saying that, you know, the overwhelming majority of the families that she's working with whose kids are in the system, who've gotten caught up in the system, are homeless, you know, and they're getting docs for things like, you know, their kids not getting to school. And so it's called, you know, educational neglect. And of course, we want every parent to make sure that their child is getting to school. But when you 
are homeless, <laughs> you know, there are other problems at play. And, you know, one of the children that we talk about in the series had been raised by her grandmother, you know, her, both of her biological parents struggled with a substance abuse disorder, but she had a stable caregiver with her grandmother. And then her family entered into this crisis when they became homeless. And that's the moment that she kind of got swept up into foster care and then actually spent three years in foster care while her grandmother was fighting to get her back. And that that never had, you know, if if all of those supports had been in place, that never had to have happened to that child. And so I think it's that that continuum of removal um, is still present in the foster care system today. And it bears out in the statistics. And then it also bears out when you you go and you talk to these Native families and just talk about, you know, the way that they were treated. You know, one of the moms I talked to for this series, you know, she did everything in her case plan. She had, you know, marked every box, done everything, gotten sober, done counseling, done everything. And her social worker told her point blank, you will never get your children back. Like, I'm I'm not going to help you get your children back. And so, you know, those are the experiences of Native families who are in the system today. You know, that's not what's happening in the 50s and the 60s. That's what's happening, you know, in 2021. Lawsuits brought by white people who are challenging ICWA because they want to adopt Native children invoke many of the themes that have historically driven child removal in the U.S. Conditions imposed upon Native people by settler colonialism are cited as evidence that Native parents are unfit to raise their children. Classism and even fat phobia are invoked in cases where wealthy white people depict themselves as saviors, rescuing Native children from unhealthy, backward lives. The types of reasons the foster parents give for why their better homes are things like that their home is bigger and that, you know, literally they will argue things that like they have more money and more financial stability, that they can provide more opportunities. You know, they in one of the cases, the Cliffords tried to make an argument that they had done a better job of managing um, at the time. I think she was seven, a child's weight and diet and exercise than her grandmother had. And so all of that subtext of favoring, you know, white families and middle class families and really in these instances, upper middle class families um, is all there when you go down to the underlying custody disputes. I am going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a nonprofit news organization, and the vast majority of our funding comes from readers and listeners like you. We've experienced a bit of a slowdown in donations recently, which may have something to do with Facebook ramping down engagement with political content. But we are still here, delivering award-winning independent journalism. We are a union shop, and we have not laid anyone off during the pandemic, and our family and sick leave policies are the best in the industry. So if you believe in what we do, please consider stopping by truthout.org to make a donation today. One of the reasons I find this land to be so important is that Rebecca's podcast really maps out the overlapping interests that have aligned to bring down ICWA 
and why they've come together to destroy this law. The first and most obvious players are white adoptive parents who feel ICWA unfairly restricts their ability to adopt Native children and the multi-billion dollar industry that wants to provide them with those children for a price. The opposition to ICWA kind of falls into three main buckets. There are, there's the private adoption industry, which is really led by a couple private adoption attorneys. There is Uh, corporate lawyers, and then the last bucket is a universe of right-wing funders and organizations. So starting with the private adoption industry, um, some big national organizations that represent um, the private adoption industry, including the National Council for Adoption and the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys, have come out very publicly and very strongly against ICWA and have actually been part of these cases to try and strike ICWA down. And if you look at the private adoption industry, I mean, in general, they don't like regulation and they don't like and they tend to fight regulation that limits the number of children that are available for adoption. And so this is a really hard conversation to have about adoption because we think of adoption as, um, you know, there are children in need and adoption is this altruistic thing that helps a child in need. And the need, the scale of need and the balance of need in the United States right now is actually the opposite. There are more people who want to adopt children. And specifically when you talk about infants, um, then there are children to adopt. And that's for a couple reasons. One is that, you know, access to abortion and reproductive freedom and birth control and even just it being more socially acceptable for women who aren't married to have a kid really kind of tanked the number of babies that were available for adoption. And so what the adoption industry did is that they went actually internationally. So they went to other countries And one by one, those countries, because of coercive and abusive practices, because of bribery, and then some actually like high profile murders of adopted children, those countries like Guatemala and Ethiopia and South Korea actually closed their borders to U.S. families. And so you see in the 2000s, the number of children available to American families just fell off this cliff. Um, And people called it that, you know, I mean, some of the big adoption agencies and lobbying organizations for the adoption industry actually had to shut shutter their doors um, because there wasn't enough business. And what started to happen, a trend that I would argue it's about a decade old and you really see the numbers sort of going up in the mid 2010s, but they've been trending that way for a while is that these same agencies are now turning to foster care. And so there are private adoption agencies whose goal is to find adoptable children for clients who are paying for that service, who are licensing their clients to be foster parents and are telling them that foster care is a pathway to adoption. So every every plaintiff in this case, all of these non-native 
foster families were using were what's called foster to adopt. And so they were using the foster care system, you know, not to have a child for six months and then another child for a year and then another child for another three months and to be kind of that, you know, stopgap, that that support, that resource for, you know, a child in a family in crisis. They were really, you know, explicitly fostering to adopt. Um, And so I think that that's, you know, a huge trend and a huge problem. And I think the other thing that we're really, really uncomfortable talking about with adoption is the race and class dynamic. So the majority of children who are adopted in the United States are children of color. And the overwhelming majority of people who are adopting, about 75%, are white. And then there's also huge class differences. And so really, like, we we have a system where, you know, families of color and families who are poorer, their children are being adopted by families that have more wealth and who are mostly white. And so that's just the dynamics of domestic adoption. And the other thing is that, you know, adopting from foster care is a different system, but a private adoption, you know, where you go through an agency is about 50 to $60,000. So it's extremely expensive, um, which excludes, you know, who can do it. But it also, you know, is how private adoption attorneys make money. And so what we found, um, what, and, and, and I think there was, you know, I talked to, I talked to adoption attorneys. I talked to people who ran adoption agencies. You know, I talked to people who ran adoption agencies who thought that those dynamics were fine. I talked to people who were really conscientious about those dynamics. And one of the terms that I heard over and over again that I think really helps explain the adoption industry in the United States was this term that people called a gray market, where it's not, you know, like children are being bought and sold on a black market. But if there are loopholes in the law, which there are a lot because adoption laws state by state, adoption attorneys will, you know, use those loopholes to help their client get what they want, which is an adoptable child, an infant. And so, yeah, and and we found a specific case of a lawyer, you know, who sort of, you know, came up with this very elaborate legal reasoning that doesn't have any court decisions that back it up, but um, that, you know, tribes don't need to be notified in private adoption. So he was adopting all of these. Um, or we found one case um, where he adopted a native child out of Arizona without ever notifying the tribe. And so I think that there's um, so that's that's one one leg of what's going on with the private adoption industry. And and I would just say that I think we we need to have a conversation nationally about the dynamics of adoption and also really about the shift to foster to adopt. You know, in international adoption, the difference in money and power that American families had when they went into developing nations created huge systems of abuse, you know. And for us to think that that dynamic isn't going to happen where, you know, the families that are in the child welfare system are disproportionately poor, disproportionately families of color. And here you have families that have more resources to for us to not think that some of those same abuses aren't going to happen. I think it's simply naive based on what we've already seen the adoption industry do internationally. And so I think it raises some big ethical ethical issues. To Native people, the lives and welfare of Native children are at the heart of this struggle. But there is more at stake 
in the fight to dismantle ICWA than a single law, or even the fates of Native children and families who are currently caught up in the system. Because the legal argument that white adoptive parents are making to unravel ICWA could ultimately unravel Indian law as we know it in the U.S., putting the rights of all Native people and our tribal nations in jeopardy. And so the plaintiffs in this big federal lawsuit, Brackeen v. Holland, are making a very, very, very specific legal argument. They're saying that the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, is racial discrimination because it treats non-Native foster parents differently than it would treat Native families, and that it treats Native kids differently than it would treat non-Native kids, and that that is racial discrimination and that we have, you know, a constitutional amendment that says you can't treat people differently based on race, and so therefore the whole thing in its entirety is unconstitutional. The problem with that is that the foundation of federal Indian law is the unique political status of tribes. You know, um, our tribes have signed over 300 treaties with the United States federal government through the same constitutional process that that the United States signed treaties with, you know, Japan and Germany. And the rights that our tribes have flow from those treaties. And so it's not about race. It's about the political status of tribes and tribal citizens. So just like I have certain rights because I'm a citizen of the United States or because I'm a resident of Oklahoma or because I live in, you know, Cherokee County, um, I have certain rights because I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation And while, you know, Native people have experienced racism and we've been racialized under the law, the status of, you know, in this case, you know, it's kind of outdated language, but the law uses the language Indian child. An Indian child, as defined by ICWA, is a child who is either eligible for enrollment in a tribe or already enrolled. And so that's about that tribe's, it's not about that child's race, it's about that child's political relationship to a sovereign nation. And really that sovereign nation's right to keep its children safe, you know? And so the broader implications is that, well, if ICWA is unconstitutional because it's racial discrimination, what about every other area of federal Indian law? You know, when I go to my local IHS hospital for health care, I can go to that hospital. But if you're not a tribal citizen, they would turn you away. How, how is it if we're just a racial category? How is it constitutional that Hastings can serve me but not other people? What about our right to regulate um, clean air and clean water on our lands? What about our right to have reservations? No other racial group in the United States has a land base or a government or a tribal police force or its own court system, right? And so the thinking is, is that this, these ICWA cases are kind of like a Trojan horse um, to attack other areas of federal Indian law and to kind of, you know, it's almost like pulling a thread on a sweater that if the Supreme Court upholds that ICWA is racial discrimination, then you can kind of translate that to other areas of federal Indian law. And it's not this sort of like put on your tinfoil hat kind of conspiracy thing. It's actually like really, really very clearly um, demonstrable because 
the corporate lawyers who are bringing these anti-ICWA cases have made the same arguments in cases fighting tribal casinos and tribal gaming. So Paul Clement, um, who's one of the big powerful lawyers behind these anti-ICWA cases, um, argued that a tribe's right to build a casino where his client could not constitute racial discrimination and used almost some of the same exact language that he then turned around and made in an ICWA case. Matthew McGill, who's representing the plaintiffs in the most current case, has made the state's rights argument, which is the second part of the argument in the Brackeen's case, um, to prevent a tribal casino from opening in Arizona. And so it's not that big of a logical leap that, you know, these lawyers have already taken these legal theories and legal arguments from gaming to ICWA, that if they win in the venue of ICWA, that they can take it back to gaming. And if you can strike at the legality of Indian gaming, there's a lot of money to be made. You know, of all casino revenue in the United States, tribes represent half. You know, it's about $30 billion a year. And then the other area where there's a lot of money interest is oil and gas. And so even though um, tribes have jurisdiction over less than 2% of the land in the United States. It's about half of all fossil fuel resources um, west of the Mississippi, you know, huge reserves of oil and gas and huge reserves of coal. Um, and right now those, that, those resources can't be extracted without tribal consent. And then there's also all of these other layers, you know, we've seen in these pipeline disputes where, um, you know, pipelines are infringing on indigenous nations, you know, hunting and treaty rights or, you know, fishing rights or um, clean water rights that might even extend beyond the specific reservation boundaries because a lot of treaties include um you know, hunting and fishing rights that aren't specifically on the reservation and tribes are starting to assert that. And so there's a lot of open conversation um, within the oil and gas industry about how um, indigenous sovereignty, tribal sovereignty is a risk and is a threat to their bottom line. And so we, you know, Gibson Dunn, who is the um, law firm that is representing the plaintiffs, in this case, pro bono, they are the same law firm that represented the Dakota Access Pipeline Company, you know? And they they have um, lobbying groups who've represented their clients who've talked about how, you know, indigenous resistance and, you know, these pipeline protests really need to be stopped because it's hurting their business. And so it's you can just see the financial connections. And I think that that's what makes this case so scary is because, um, you know, in the kind of ground level of the federal court, um, there was a conservative judge that basically agreed with the plaintiffs and said, you know what, ICWA is racial discrimination. It then went to a very conservative appeals court in the Fifth Circuit And they were basically split on the question. You know, they issued this really complicated split decision um, that didn't get rid of ICWA, um, didn't rule it unconstitutional. But you could tell that on these very, very, very basic principles of federal Indian law, you've got, you know, eight justices on an appeals court who would rule that basically federal Indian law is unconstitutional. And now the case is waiting on the steps of the Supreme Court And the stakes are just very, very high because it could have this ripple effect that threatens everything, you know, from gaming to hunting and fishing rights to health to tribal self-governance, tribal police. 
you know, sort of almost almost anything that you can think of, um, because if Native Americans, you know, can't be treated, you know, quote unquote, differently based on race, well, that's that's, you know, all of federal Indian law. Indigenous people make up less than 5% of the world's population, but steward over 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. The struggle for native sovereignty in the U.S. is inextricably tied to the battle for life on Earth. When most people think about the role of native people in environmental struggles, they think of protest movements like Standing Rock or the water protectors who fought Line 3. But in the battle over ICWA, we are seeing right-wing forces use Native children as the tip of a spear, aimed at our very ability to steward the Native land and waters that companies like Enbridge have yet to destroy. There are many ways, the world over, that Indigenous people are being targeted for defending the Earth. In places like Colombia and the Philippines, assassinations have become increasingly common. Here in the United States... Indigenous activists have faced escalating state violence and criminalization, but we are also faced with a legal onslaught that could devastate our fundamental rights as Native people under the law and re-legitimize the outright theft of our children, land, and water. And as if all of that wasn't bad enough, Rebecca and her team discovered yet another layer to the plot to destroy ICWA, And it all comes back to the initial question that led Rebecca to pursue this story. Why? Sure, there are money players, and there are people who want to subsume a lot of valuable resources. But ICWA has been challenged more times than the Affordable Care Act. And given what killing the ACA means to conservatives, that's pretty huge. So who was willing to dump seemingly infinite amounts of money into gutting this law? And why? So there was a high-profile Supreme Court case that happened in 2013. And then since then, um, and and ICWA wasn't declared unconstitutional, but it was kind of a partial win. And you could tell that the justices didn't really understand the law, didn't really understand tribal sovereignty, and had a lot of sympathy um, for the plaintiffs in that case. And so it kind of was... Um, this blood in the water moment where people could see, okay, I think, you know, this is an area where we have some sympathy from the Supreme Court and maybe we could prevail. And so in those early years, kind of like 2015, 2016, the organization spearheading these anti-ICWA cases was this right-wing think tank in Arizona called the Goldwater Institute. And it was kind of random, um, to think, well, why, you know, why would this organization pick ICWA? And we were able through FOIA requests to find, you know, that they had been coordinating with state attorney generals since 2015. You know, they brought a barrage of cases and they they really helped to get this attack off the ground. And so what I wanted to know as a reporter is who paid for it and why. And what we found is that it was this conservative family foundation in Wisconsin called the Bradley Foundation. 
And it's interesting because I think people are used to hearing about like the Coke network and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, And there are many, many years that the Bradley Foundation actually outspends the entire Coke network combined, but it doesn't receive nearly as much press attention and press coverage. But the Bradley Foundation got a huge influx of cash in the mid-2010s, and they were looking at how to spend it to build what they called conservative state infrastructure. They decided that, you know, they kind of saw the writing on the wall that, you know, Republicans, because of changing demographics in the U.S., are probably, you know, not always going to control D.C. But if conservatives can control the states and the courts, you know, who is in the White House and, you know, who controls Congress can matter less and less. And so they created this plan to build conservative state infrastructure. They actually asked Goldwater to submit a proposal. And Goldwater's proposal was to build a state-based litigation alliance. So if folks are kind of aware of it, um, you know, when you hear kind of like, oh, you know, five states passed voter ID laws or, you know, these anti-trans bills all happen at the same time, there are a couple organizations that help coordinate state litigation in conservative states. And so basically, Goldwater's proposal was to create a litigation arm of that. So there wouldn't just be coordinated conservative laws. There would be coordinated conservative lawsuits. And that's where the money to fight ICWA came from. Um, It kind of shocked me as a journalist because it wasn't really about tribes, it seems like, from the documents we read. It wasn't really specifically about tribal sovereignty it was about this bigger agenda of building conservative power. And ICWA was just a tool that got sucked up in it. And like the Center for Media and Democracy and some other folks have done some really great in-depth reporting on the Bradley Foundation. But it was kind of like what I mentioned where, you know, they hired this consultant. They kind of did this whole like reflective process before they sent out a big RFP But their thinking is, you know, is if we can control states and if we can control the courts, then it's kind of a runaround D.C., basically, (laughs) you know. And so, you know, I think that their goal is to build conservative conservative power and to maintain um, conservative control over politics. Um, And it's kind of incredible that there's still a family foundation because the internal memos, and I should say they got hacked. That's why we know all of this stuff. They got hacked in um, the summer of 2016. And so there's a huge document leak from international hackers. Um, And so that's how we know kind of the internal thinking at the Bradley Foundation. Um, And and to me, it's kind of incredible. I mean, you know, they make, they make, donations to like art museums and symphonies and things like that that are very typical and they do a lot of that stuff you know in the state that they're based but if you look at kind of their national giving it's very targeted towards building conservative power and in this one rfp you know it wasn't issue based it's not like okay we want to go um you know get rid of abortion it was really about building infrastructure and networks across states to build, yeah, what they called conservative state infrastructure. And so, I mean, it's it's this very strategic approach to building and maintaining conservative power. I, I think we're having a lot of conversations right now 
about the courts and the Supreme Court and, you know, with abortion in front of the Supreme Court, people are asking a lot about um, the role of the courts in our democracy and in politics. And I would say anybody who cares about that should be paying attention to this case, should be paying attention to Brackeen v. Holland, because it, on a in a zoomed-in way and then also on a big level, tells that story. You know, Texas for a really long time worked to make the judges, they they actually, they have this really unique system of appointing federal judges where there's actually a panel of conservative lawyers in the state who appoint people to the senators who then put them through the confirmation process. And it's, You can just see all of the tiny relationships, um, this small network of relationships. You know, the person who headed up the Gibson Dunn, I believe it was the Dallas office. It was either the Dallas or Houston office. I'm pretty sure it was the Dallas office. At the time that they took this case, that they took the Brett Keynes case, he helped appoint the, he was on the committee that nominated the judge that they took the case to, you know? And so that very conservative district judge who basically took a 40-year-old law and wrote this radical decision where he chucked it out the window, um, you know, was put in place by this system. And then we see the Fifth Circuit, that that person who was heading up the Gibson Dunn office is actually now on the Fifth Circuit. He's a Trump appointee. But the Fifth Circuit is a very conservative circuit court. And they came out with this extremely confusing but also very radical ruling, you know, that goes against literally centuries of federal Indian law. And now the case is headed to the Supreme Court. And I think, you know, a lot of people are paying attention to abortion as a test to, you know, how much the Supreme Court follows precedent and things like that. And I would say in Brackeen v. Holland, we have a case where what's on the table, I mean, it depends on how the Supreme Court grants cert and how they take it up. If they take it up in a broad way, literally what's on the table is, you know, the constitutionality of an entire section of U.S. law, you know, Title 25. <laughs> you you'd, Like if it was, you know, back in the days where like those things were in books, it's like a whole book of the U.S. Um, US code is literally on the table. And so I think I think what we for folks who are interested in how the courts are shaping our democracy and what is happening in the courts, this this is one of the cases that needs to be watched. So in the struggle over ICWA, what's at stake? The fate of native children and families the lands and waters that Native people steward, and potentially the very shape of what passes for democracy in the United States. So I sincerely hope that our listeners will feel moved to learn more about this issue and that you will all subscribe to the podcast This Land because it really is a momentous piece of journalism. This society rarely acknowledges harms against Native people while they are unfolding. The socially acceptable posture toward us, even in progressive circles, is typically one of regret. But we are still here, and many Native people are fighting, not only for the futures of Native children, but for the survival of all life on Earth. Just last month, 55 water protectors and Indigenous leaders were arrested while occupying the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It was the first time since the 1970s that Native activists had seized that space, but I'm guessing that most of you didn't hear about it. 
Charges against water protectors who were arrested trying to halt construction of Line 3 are reportedly straining the legal system in northern Minnesota counties. But I'm not seeing the outpouring of support that those activists are going to need as they continue to fight outrageous charges, including charges of attempted assisted suicide for two protectors who climbed into a pipeline. I want people to mourn for Native children who were stolen and killed by the state and for the massacres and removals of the past. But I also want people to recognize that we are here now and that our liberation and survival is bound up in everyone else's. These may look like our battles and our battles alone, but really it's more a matter of who's showing up because everyone has always had a stake in stopping the violence of colonialism because the end game of capitalism and colonialism is the end of the fucking world. We all have a stake in the battles ahead against right-wing power grabs and companies that want to strip mine the world for resources until there's nothing left. We all have a stake in stopping them. So let's remember our connectivity and let's remember that the harms that are inflicted upon us are deeply connected. And let's try not to let each other down. I want to thank Rebecca Nagel for talking with me about ICBA and her podcast, This Land, which you can find on Crooked Media or wherever you get your podcasts. Rebecca's team has provided links to resources for survivors of child removal and for investigative journalists who want to learn more in the show notes of This Land episodes, and we will be linking to that content in the show notes of this episode as well. I want to send some love to all of the residential school survivors out there, to the adoptees, and to the displaced. May we all find each other on the front lines as we fight to keep our children, our land, and this world. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.